Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Craig Webb about his approach to managing elevated liver enzymes. After completing his PhD in neuroscience, Dr. Webb earned his DVM from the University of Wisconsin. He then did an internship at Alameda East in Denver, where he experienced his 15 minutes of fame on Animal Planet's Emergency Vets TV show. He was then a resident at Colorado State University with the famous Dr. David Tweet as his mentor and has remained on the faculty at the Veterinary Teaching Hospital ever since. Hello, Craig. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pure Animal Podcast. I'm so excited to have you as our guest this morning. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to almost be in Australia. I've never been there, actually. Wow. Is it in your plans to one no, day I, come? I, yeah. I keep trying to get invited, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, not yet. Well, we'll have to wait until uh, this pandemic dies down, and then hopefully international travel will be allowed again, and you can yeah. you can put us on your list. <laughs> that would be great. So, Craig, before we jump into what we are discussing today, which is uh, all about liver disease and elevated liver enzymes, I'd love to hear about uh, a bit about you and your background and what made you want to become a vet and how you ended up specialising in gastroenterology. Sure. Um, so that was not the life plan. Uh, I come from, from a couple of very, very smart parents, but I was the dumb jock in the family. And I uh, grew up actually a soccer player. Uh, from there, though, um, I actually got very interested in, in trying to figure out how cats think, if you can believe that. Wow. So I, pursued a, a, yeah, I pursued a PhD in neuroscience where I looked at uh, synaptic connections in, in cat's central nervous system and quickly realized I was never going to figure out how they think. I had no interest in veterinary medicine. I, hmm. I thought that was just giving vaccines and looking at poop. And then um, just as I finished my, uh, my degree, uh, the family cat was hit by a bicycle in Madison, Wisconsin. Hmm. And my parents started telling me of all the amazing things they were doing at the newest veterinary school in the United States. And that was the University of Wisconsin. And a little light bulb went off and I said, my goodness, that's what I'm meant to do. Oh, wow. So uh, I went, yeah, I went to vet school there. Um, and uh, following that, I actually uh, did an internship at uh, Alameda East in Denver, Colorado, during the time when they were fil- filming Emergency Vet uh, Animal Planet program there. And those, so that's my 15 minutes of fame. And then I went <laughs> just north, yeah, just north up to Fort Collins. Uh, where I was fortunate enough to get a residency and, and was trained uh, by the great Dr. David Tweet, yep. uh, obviously a gastroenterologist and liver disease expert. And so I came full circle and found myself working in poop again. <laughs> uh, and that's, yeah, that's kind of uh, the brief story of how I got to, to where I am. Uh, most recently, unfortunately, actually, about two months before the pandemic hit, I missed a meeting where uh, it was decided I would become the interim VTH director. Oh, wow. And veterinary teaching hospital director, yes. And uh, then two months later, COVID hit. And so they've been unable to find anybody else to take my place yet. 
And so I'm still uh, the interim director and probably will be until uh, the rest of this country gets vaccinated. But yeah, uh, I'm yeah, still very active on the clinic floor and very well, much good. still enjoy uh, gastroenterology and do what I'm doing. Oh, that's good. And w- with the pandemic, have you noticed, obviously, there's had to, there's been a drastic change in in how uh, everyone is working, but also vets are working in Australia. You had to make some really drastic changes to the way you practice over there. Right. Mostly to the logistics of yeah. how things happen. So the the parking lot kind of interactions and no clients in the building. We've remained uh, quite busy. Um, uh, people, they, they claim that since people have been home more with their pets, they notice them the yeah, more yeah. and bring them in. To, and what else, you know, what else are you going to spend your money on these days? <laughs> so uh, in, instead of flying to Australia, you're taking your pet to the to the vet. Yeah. So yeah, fortunately, we've been quite busy. It's, it's a bit more challenging because we're a teaching hospital. And so mm. not only do we have to get uh, staff and techs into the building, we've got to get a fair number of uh, veterinary students as well. Oh, so it's yes, it's I, as I'm sure over there, it's it's a very strange experience in many ways, but we're all making the best of it thus far. Yeah, I think the mindset and attitude is is going to be the thing which helps the most in this very strange world that yeah. we're living in at the moment. Um, but I'm glad to hear that you still uh, have lots of things to do in your in your work at Colorado State. And you said that you were, you're on the clinic floor a lot and you've got some students coming through, but you're also conducting research as well as part of your position there? Yes, yes, yep. absolutely. Uh, currently, um, we're very heavily involved in uh, looking at feline GI lymphoma versus inflammatory bowel disease. Mm. Um, I do a lot of endoscopy, and so I, I very much enjoy that. And I'm, I, I think we're up to about 80 or 100 cats over the last year. We scope them, and we use all sorts of molecular testing to try to figure out the best way to diagnose this. Now we're going to mm. move into treatments. Uh, previously involved in some stem cell therapy of, um, of cats with inflammatory bowel disease and have looked at uh, oxidative stress in a number of different uh, natural, what we'd call naturally occurring models. In other words, pets who just have the disease. So Mm. in diabetes, uh, some toxicities like acetaminophen in kitty cats, and Mm -hmm. we may look at uh, Sharpe fever, which has a large component that is uh, presumably dealing with oxidative stress as well. So uh, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff still very much going on in the research realm here at, at Colorado State. Yeah, that is really interesting. I, I, I've i never seen a case of Sharpay fever, but it, I would be really interested to read more about that and the fact that it's uh, relating to oxidative stress. Hopefully that can be a big step forward for those poor Sharpays. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. That's real. That's really interesting, and I'm, I'm glad that that's still ongoing because, of course, we need that research to be continually rolling out so that everyone can keep learning and everything can keep progressing forward. So that's great to hear, Craig. Yeah. I'd really what we'd really love to talk to you about today is one of your. Obviously, being a gastroenterologist, one of your specialties, which is the liver and diseases of the liver. But I wanted to start with talking about liver enzymes. I know I spent five years in practice and uh, I know that 
quite often we'd have patients walking in the door and having a routine procedure and doing some pre-anesthetic blood screens and all of a sudden you see a high ALT and ALP but they're presenting with no other clinical signs. How do you right. how do you address these cases? Because I feel like a general practitioner would see this almost on a day-to-day basis. Right. I, I think you're I think you're right. And I think um I think that's a great question because I think the answer and the approach is actually pretty important. And the first step is to move from elevated liver enzymes uh, to a more um, a more detailed explanation of just what is happening. And that's as simple as deciding, well, who is really kind of leading the way? If it's, is it ALT? Or is it ALP, alanine transferase or alkaline phosphatase? Mm -hmm. And I assume you guys over there call them ALT and ALP. Yes, yep. Um, And as as we all know, often they are both elevated. They're good friends. They live next to each other. So they often behave uh, at least in the same direction. But usually one or the other is really kind of the dominant elevation. Mm-hmm. And that's an important distinction um, because ALT, if I see a, a, a significant elevation in ALT, I take note. That's mm-hmm. the red flag. Uh, that's the liver in some probably serious trouble. And that should be a strong motivating force to say, okay, we need to, we need to pursue this and we need to look a little closer. Mm-hmm. If it's ALP that's dominating the elevation, I am much more inclined, and just as you've said, it happens all the time, pre-dental work, mm. uh, for example, or the annual checkup in an older dog. And I'm much more inclined to say, well, the liver could very well be just fine, but there's something else potentially in your dog that's a little, or kitty cat, mostly dog, that's a little off kilter. And you know what? If they're coming in for a dentistry because they've got infected or inflamed teeth or gingiva, that could very well be what's causing the ALP to go up. Mm. So although the knee-jerk reaction is to say, okay, well, time out. Uh, We can't do this procedure. We can't risk anesthesia. We can't go forward until we got if I have an elevated ALP and a dog who's otherwise feeling pretty good, but hey, we need a dental, I'm going to do the dental. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to recheck maybe that ALP a month afterwards. Yeah. And there's a good chance that it was the dental that caused it. Dogs also uh, will get benign nodular hyperplasia of their livers that leads to a, an elevation in ALP. It can even lead to uh, an abdominal ultrasound that looks a little knobbly, so mm-hmm. people get a little more nervous. Uh, that is a is often just a completely benign process. So mm-hmm. um, that's it's it's important to take that next step from the liver enzymes to who is elevated. And as you pointed out, uh, very importantly, you start with the clinical picture in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, don't chase numbers. Uh, if your patient is completely healthy. Uh, then be careful about being driven by elevations in numbers that may be just part of uh, normal variation, uh, either in dogs or in that particular breed, for example. But yes, ALT, 
will always catch my attention. ALP, I, I look at the client, I look at the patient, I look at what else might be going on, and I get much, I'm certainly much less motivated to do things right away or get too concerned. Okay, right. That's really clear. The ALT elevation, are you worried if you see any elevation above the upper limit of normal at all? And would that be a, a red flag to you wanting to pursue further diagnostics? Or are you then going to re- recheck in a month if they're just sort of a mild elevation? Yes, you're exactly right. So even, if it, even in the ALT, uh, certainly in the ALP, if our elevations are, oh, not yet doubled or not yet tripled, it's, and I have a, a patient in front of me who is still acting well, eating well, drinking, et cetera, it's very reasonable to say, let's, let's hold off a month and recheck that value and look for a trend. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I had a bad day a couple of weeks ago. The enzymes are just reflecting that. You're going to be just fine. Maybe you got a bit of a toxin in you uh, and you're on the mend already. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, uh, elevations that aren't overly elevated, again, uh, a recheck, whether it's two weeks, four weeks, looking at the half-life of these guys, um, it's a very reasonable next step. Okay, great. And if you were going to choose to investigate rather than recheck. Can you take us through a typical kind of stepwise approach to what diagnostics you would be recommending? Sure. Um, So again, separating the two, Mm -hmm. um, it it even starts with history because either of these enzymes can be impacted by uh, medications, um, toxins, uh, even something against as simple as eye drops or ear medications, if they happen to have some steroid in them, are going to yeah. impact ALP. Uh, ALP less so, which is another reason that uh, it makes you a little bit more nervous. Um, have they had any previous blood work that might suggest that this is a very slow, gradual elevation in ALP in a dog who's getting a bit older? Boom, that fits. So... Um, again, even in this day and age, we've got to be a little careful about the history of, of either diets or yeah. treats. Uh, again, uh, has, has your bag of food maybe expired? Is it getting moldy? Has it yeah. uh, been sitting around in damp areas? So, uh, again, search for uh, potential toxins. I don't. I must admit, I don't know if um, if there's lepto in Australia. Uh, I know there's a lot of snakes that can kill you, is what I've been told. But <laughs> I don't know if there's I don't know if there's much left though. So yeah, there, there is are a bit, few yeah. Uh, yeah, a few infectious things that might cause some jumps in liver enzymes. Um, xylitol. Also, uh, mm. what kind of human things are they ingesting? Yeah. So history can be important. Um, physical exam can be uh, helpful. So again, if I've got an ALP elevation, uh, do they have some derm disease, yeah. something as simple as derm disease, my oral exam, right? We talked about uh, uh, oral disease, whether it's gingivitis or dental disease. Uh, are they having some GI signs? Yeah. Uh, so my rectal and asking about the diarrhea, uh, et cetera. Um, 
uh, auscultation, now you're getting a little more serious. So certainly you can have elevations in ALP that are reflecting uh, lung disease yeah. or other abdominal organ disease. It's potential that ALP will feel some of that as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, just as always, signalman chief complaint, history and physical exam is a critical skill set for veterinarians uh, and often the most valuable skill set you have, and that's what you're paid for up front. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, critical that we pay attention to that. I agree. Um, big, yeah, big question after that is whether or not to run bile acids. Yeah. Um, and you may run into some disagreement. Even my old mentor, Dr. Tweet, and I may not quite agree on this. Um, in general, remind yourself that liver enzymes are really looking at something distinctly different than bile acid testing. Mm -hmm. Liver enzymes are looking for cholestatic conditions or hepatocellular damage, toxic insults, etc. Mm -hmm. Bile acids are really looking at liver function. function. Yep. And uh, if I don't have re and, and usually the clinical presentation is is pretty different in those two. Uh, although there's some for some similarity, but even on my what we call here our chemistry panel or biochemical profile, there are some things I would pay attention to if I think I have a liver problem. So the liver function uh, parameters will be things like glucose, cholesterol, blood urea nitrogen or BUN, mm -hmm. and albumin. Those are the four parameters on at least our chemistry panels that rely amongst other things, on liver function. So yeah. even before I would think about a bile acids, if I'm worried about liver function, I look at those nice. parameters. And if they're all on the low side, maybe I get a little more nervous. Yeah. Um, the other parameter that's a little more in line with, uh, or often in line with uh, liver insult, of course, is total bilirubin. Mm. And so I, I pay mm. attention to that as well. Uh, and then I go through my standard pre-hepatic, hepatic, post-hepatic causes if the bilirubin is up. Mm -hmm. um, very frequently here, uh, these guys, if we, if we are motivated to really look into things, these guys will often end up uh, getting an abdominal ultrasound. Mm. Uh, and again, uh, it's low yield, but it is minimally invasive uh, to get a fine needle aspirate of the liver, and you'd want to try both cytology and culture. Uh, unfortunately, vast majority of times, it'll come back vacuolar hepatopathy, which is, is not necessarily that informative. Uh, but every once in a while, uh, you'll, you'll get lucky and you'll find either a neoplastic process um, or, or you might get some inflammatory cells, which are leading you one way or another. Yeah. I don't know how many uh, kitty cat practitioners we have, but with those guys and their liver enzymes, um, I'd be taking a close look at their gallbladder. And if the wall is, if the gallbladder wall is abnormal, I'd want to find a, a skilled ultrasonographer to try to get me a sample actually of, of the bile from that gallbladder, again, for psychology right. okay. and culture. Yeah. Okay. And um, before taking a fine into aspirate, would you always routinely uh, check the clotting factors to make sure that there's no right, risk of bleeding? Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. And in fact, it turns out it's kind of a, 
a CYA. I don't know if Australians use that acronym. It's it's cover your arse. How's that? <laughs> um, that's that's my one. Haven't that's heard one, that one. <laughs> the one Australian word I know, right? Arse. Um, so it's it's really a cover your arse because um, it turns out that uh, that patients will bleed following fine needle aspirate if you hit a big vessel. Mm. Um, they really, it's very rare that they would bleed simply because their clotting times aren't quite up to speed or they're having a bit of a coagulopathy. Uh, we even find that when we do laparoscopy. Uh, they, they, they bleed if you've whacked a big vessel, and a good ultrasonographer can do a good job of avoiding big vessels. Yeah. So uh, if I would not let that, if that's a cost constraint issue, I would not let that prevent me from doing it. Yeah. Or if you want to be double CYA, uh, you could give them a day or two of vitamin K1 supplement. All oh, right. Okay. Um, which, yeah, which will reasonably help with many coagulopsies to begin with. So, okay. So just a couple uh, that, of days. That would be another strategy. Uh, an oral supplement yeah. or injections? Usually we use injections, yeah. sub-Q. Okay. Just yeah. for a couple of days. Well, that's a good tip. And so you've done your ultrasound and you've taken your fine needle aspirate and you've got your information. When would you be choosing to go forward with a biopsy? Yeah, um, pretty frequently, to be honest, particularly if I've got elevated ALT. Mm -hmm. um, by this time, if, I, if it's the ALP, then I'm thinking myself, okay, do, I, do clinically I do, I have a cushionoid animal. And so yeah. maybe I'm doing some endocrine testing. Yeah. Um, and now having said that, I remind all of us that Cushing's is a clinical diagnosis. Yeah. The great Nelson and Feldman say if the dog is not clinical, it does not have Cushing. Yeah. So you do not go down that road just because you have that pre-dental elevated okay. ALP. That's a big mistake. You're going to end up, again, often in an Australian place that has lots of poisonous snakes. You don't want to go there. Um <laughs> If if the dog starts out clinical, so it comes in for that dental, but it's PUPD, it's it's peeing in the exam room, or it's grabbing yeah. your your tech lunch off the counter, blah blah. Then yes, then there's a logical endocrinopathy waiting there for you. Um, so that being said, but if it's the ALT and my uh, fine needle aspirate hasn't helped us out with an answer, uh, I am seriously talking to these folks about. Uh, grabbing some pieces of liver. And here we do laparoscopy, yeah. uh, which is a really minimally invasive way. Uh, I would strongly encourage uh, anybody listening to consider that in private practice. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it just, uh, it has all sorts of, of possibilities. It's a great diagnostic tool. So me as a medicine guy, I mean, they don't let me go anywhere near a scalpel blade, but I can do laparoscopy to, yeah, I can do laparoscopy to get samples of liver. You could get samples of pancreas. You can take a look. You can even do a true cut of the kidneys. There's, so diagnostically, there's a huge, huge amount of information you can gain. Yeah. But then uh, if these are predominantly private practitioners, then they're asked to do everything. Yeah. And if you, if it doesn't take long to become proficient at laparoscopic spades, for example, yeah. and many owners will much prefer that. So anyways, we, uh, and yeah, we often will then get them signed up for laparoscopy so we can get samples. Again, private practitioners are, are so good. They can probably get in and out of an abdomen in 30 minutes 
And so that would be another option. Mm. And we'll take samples of various lobes and we'll go for histopath, of course. Mm -hmm. We'll go for, again, a small piece for culture. And then critical to this conversation is that uh, you measure certainly copper levels, if not also copper, iron, and zinc, but the most important being, of course, copper. Great. And does that sort of then generally lead to a diagnosis once you've done all of those different steps? Yeah. Okay. Great. So what happens, um, which I would assume we've got a lot of general practitioners listening, and this was often the case when I was in practice, uh, what happens if the the lovely pet parent who really wants to do best by their pet, but they just can't afford it. What happens if they decline yeah. it all and you're seeing an elevated ALT, but they're currently subclinical, but you do have concern because that ALT is creeping up. Maybe you've done another recheck a month later and it's still trending upwards, but they're still declining further. Yeah. How would you manage these guys? You mean you have those in Australia? I thought we were the only ones who had owners who either couldn't afford or didn't. That is, so that's comforting. It's good to know. It's not just it's a us. universal problem. Yes, that, yes it is. Um, for sure. Um, so if it's, uh, if it's, and again, two different, really kind of two different conversations. Um, if it's ALT, um, it's reasonable at this point uh, to consider a trial of a reasonably broad spectrum antibiotic, mm-hmm. um, and you want to aim at enterics, so the kinds of bugs that are going to likely show up from the GI tract. Uh, we're starting, of course, to make some assumptions, but that's a reasonable one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, whether it's a two or probably four week course, the ALT becomes a nice measure of whether those antibiotics have had an impact or not. Um, And if they have, uh, you might then extend the course up to six or eight weeks and hope to bring the ALT back down into the normal range. And this suggests you've had an infectious process going on. If it doesn't seem to do much, uh, then, of course, comes the critical question of, uh, okay, I'm feeling more confident that I don't have an infectious organism as part of the etiology, and now I'm going to step into either anti-inflammatory or immunomodulator prednisolone treatment. Uh, that's the glucocorticoid of choice over here in the state. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I'm, cons- I'm old and conservative. Uh, except politically. Otherwise, I'm old and conservative. (laughs) And so I would start at an anti-inflammatory sort of dose as opposed to um, going up to the immunosuppressive or immunomodulatory doses. And now you throw yourself off a bit. uh, But the fact is that that's going to throw your ALK-FOS, ALP, out of whack. And so you can't use that anymore. But ALT, not so much. And so you would expect either clinical signs uh, or the ALT to start to respond to this if you've you've kind of stumbled on a a correct etiology and are treating that. Yeah, if if I'm concerned about or or if I think I have uh, either a vacuolar hepatopathy or a steroid hepatopathy or nodular hyperplasia where the ALP is dominating the picture, 
Um, and I'm not particularly concerned. This is not a, a sick dog. This is not an endocrinopathy. I haven't found any other source of inflammation or problem in the dog. Then I'm thinking about uh, nonspecific but liver-friendly treatments, um, uh, again, just in an effort to help keep the liver as healthy as it is at this point, even with that ALP. And the ALP may or may not respond much to that, but I know that I'm offering the liver uh, some some less specific support. Mm-hmm. And how do, what does that look like? Are you thinking about dietary changes or what are your sort of practical liver-friendly support? Right. <laughs> dietary changes... Uh, unfortunately, maybe aren't as impactful in liver disease unless uh, we're looking at a copper-restricted diet. Um, I'm looking more at, uh, then now we're starting to get into nutraceuticals, uh, and and there are a variety of them out there um, that you have to choose from. Um, So, uh, and there are some that have some some reasonable research support. Uh, There are some that are uh, of translational interest because there has been some studies in, in humans that yeah. are supporting this. Uh, and so, uh, again, uh, some that are most famous, probably the, the, the leader of the pack, in, at least in veterinary medicine, um, the first one really to hit our profession was S-adenosylmethionine or yeah. SAMe, yeah. Um, which has a yeah, fascinating history in, in the human world. Um, and really started out as an antidepressant, which I think is is kind of fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's it's yeah. It it was really the first one that I at least was exposed to uh, many years. Many boy, many. Oh my goodness, has it been that many? Yes, <laughs> many, many, many years ago. Um, I in fact did my original resident project on esadenosylmethionine oh, right. in kitty cats. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and yeah, yeah, it was fascinating stuff. And of course, Dr. Sharon Center has been one of the leaders in our field uh, in the SAMI research. But I mean, for example, um, we all know that the use of steroids in dogs is going to elevate alpha. And presumably, you've got a bit of a steroid hepatopathy. And even though that's clinically maybe not all that impactful, it's not all that comfortable to to be doing that to your dog. And Dr. Center's original, some of her original work in this was to show that if you gave concurrent S-adenosylmethionine, you actually could mitigate some of those steroid-induced parameters in these dogs. And uh, so, um, and and most importantly, of course, uh, it's been shown again and again and again uh, that it's not causing harm. Yes. So uh, reaching for, yeah, that's, yeah, that would be one of the ones you certainly could reach for uh, as non-specific but supportive care in in most any liver uh, condition, actually. Yep, and that's considered a precursor to glutathione, which is an important antioxidant for the liver. What about another common antioxidant, milk thistle? Yeah, yeah, milk thistle. And actually, the other the other point about esadenosylmethionine, um, uh, SAMe, which is is often overlooked. Uh, if you're not into kind of biochemically, it is most famous, yes, for exactly what you pointed out, which is it is a critical precursor to glutathione, which is probably the most ubiquitous antioxidant in you or me or dogs or cats, and absolutely critical. It's been the focus of much of the research. There's a fascinating 
fascinating story behind the biochemistry pathway as to why it needs to be acidenosyl methionine and not just methionine. So it's really mm. great stuff if, if you guys, uh, you know, have a chance to, to look into it. It's kind of fascinating. But acidenosyl methionine is also uh, is a critical um, uh, methyl donor. So this CH3 molecule which at first you think, oh my God, I'm going to fall asleep. He's starting to talk about biochemistry. But just take my word for it. You find CH3 molecules on almost everything you can think of. So it's a critical precursor to that whole process. And it also is critical for a pathway called transamination, which is to make neurotransmitters. And if we don't have our neurotransmitters, uh, we either aren't thinking, aren't standing, or or getting depressed. So yeah, yeah, estadenzylmethionine, not only a critical antioxidant precursor, but for all sorts of stuff going on. Yeah, uh, right. But yes, you're right. You then, you, yeah, you hit on another uh, uh, very famous and has a long history, and that's milk thistle. Um, and I was, you know, petrified at first when I first heard of this at the thought of having to ingest these thistles. That just didn't sound very appetizing or comfortable in any way, shape, or form. Unless but you're a horse. It turns they out, like them. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, they're very pretty, but I, I'm still not tempted to eat them. Um, but, but yes, there are the, the active compound, and this can get confusing whether it's silymarin or silabinin. Mm. Uh, there are subtle differences, but it's it's basically silabin or silymarin being the active compound out of milk thistle. Uh, and yes, another uh, really impactful and, and fascinating antioxidant, uh, again, with, with some pretty important research behind it. So at least in the States, we're all pretty familiar with Amanita mushroom toxicity. Yeah, uh, we don't have that over here. some of the earlier studies of milk thistle showed that uh, that could actually be quite beneficial in dogs who otherwise, uh, this toxin usually kills dogs. Right. And if there is milk thistle on board or silibin on board, uh, they don't die. So that's a wow. pretty, uh, pretty impressive measure of something that's seemingly as simple as an antioxidant. Yeah. Uh, and there are those kinds, yeah, there's those kinds of research in both uh, uh, SAMI and uh, silibin or silmarin. Uh, vitamin E would be another very uh, easily obtained standard one. Yeah. Uh, we're a little less sure on the dose of that. There was at one point a little bit of a scare in the human world uh, with some cardiac changes, but that was receiving, people receiving massive amounts of this stuff. Um, so vitamin E would be, again, it's particularly good at stopping a process we call lipid peroxidation, mm-hmm. which is, uh, again, we all remember from, uh, do they call it high school in Australia? Or, <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyways, our, our earlier education uh, that cell membranes are critical, right? If your yep. cell membrane gets messed up, your cells don't work and they die. And one way they get messed up with oxidative, oxidative stress is a process called lipid peroxidation. You remember that cell membranes are mostly lipid, yep. so they're very susceptible to oxidative stress. And vitamin E is super well uh, situated to stop that process. And uh, that, in fact, was one of the findings that I, again, I mentioned my resident project was using antioxidants would help hold on because what cells are, are basically just cells of membrane? Those are red blood cells. Yeah. And so oxidative stress can often be yeah, impacting red blood cell lifespan, et cetera. And 
uh, antioxidant use can help retard that process. So yeah. all sorts of, uh, again, theoretical possibilities, sensible possibilities, and then uh, at least some number of these have some research support uh, in both the human world as well as in veterinary medicine. Yeah, absolutely. And just back to the vitamin E, what dose do you generally use? Yeah, let me, let me hold on one sec. I have to reach deep into my back pocket. <laughs> um, and that's unfortunately part of the problem where some of these doses come from. In, a, in an average-sized dog, I'd probably be looking at 400 international units a yep. day. I, again, it's got a very wide range of, of safety margins. So uh, if you're a bit more than that or a bit less than that, uh, you're, you're undoubtedly going to be A-OK. Amazing. And so for these guys that you are supporting with these nice liver-friendly different antioxidants, um, do you want these patients to remain on antioxidant therapy forever or do you try and wean them off it? I mean, there's no risk for them being on it forever. Um, How often do you have them reassessed? So um, it turns out that... um it's not a bad thing to put these guys on it for life. Some of it will depend a little on age and the condition, uh, but a number of these guys that you start to consider it are already well into adulthood uh, or maybe a little older. Um, And you've got to remind yourself that even if it's uh, a nonspecific elevation in some liver enzymes or it's... um, uh, just a, a non-consequential elevation in alpha. So we've got a little nodular hyperplasia going on. You've got to remember that you're also treating the owners. And yeah. the owners love to believe that they are doing things doing to something. help their pet. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, uh, shoot, you know, being able to tell them, well, hey, I've got this. It's a, and, and this day more and more uh, owners are looking for non-pharmaceutical interventions. I, I don't care if you call it nutraceuticals or natural remedies yeah, or yeah. they get they, they get a bit nervous therapies. about prescriptions, right? Yeah. Oh gosh, do I've got to get all these medications? Don't you have another option? Yeah. And so uh, the dog may or may not need the support. I, I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, you can't, it's, it'd, be, it'd be almost unheard of to over-support. So I... Uh, there are, are many, many owners who, heck, you'd probably have to try to talk them out of giving it. Yeah. You know, you, well, you know, Miss Smith, you could stop now if you want. And, and Miss Smith is going, well, what do you mean stop? I, <laughs> uh, I'm doing this to help my, yeah. my family member. That's nice. I'm more than happy to continue with some great supplements uh, that are, are natural and liver friendly. And so keep them, keep them going is, is just fine. Yeah, great. Okay. And do you have them back sort of every four months or six months to reassess right. the liver enzymes? Right. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Uh, so whether it's maybe my first, maybe my first recheck is a month down the road and everything's just fine. And then I stretch it out to three or six months. Again, in the back of my mind, uh, Am I looking for big changes because of my uh, antioxidant treatment? Probably not. But am I now developing a pattern that will allow me to catch changes in that particular dog with that particular owner uh, that I might not otherwise have been able to do? Um, mm. And so getting seen any dog every six months or so, 
uh, is never a bad thing, but certainly if there is some history of some liver enzyme elevation, um, then seeing it every six months is, is only going to allow us, or three months or six months. Again, you have owners who will, who will start tooling their thumbs if you wait six months. Um, <laughs> the, that allows us to potentially catch, catch anything that may even unrelated might catch things in their pets earlier. Yeah, yeah, nice. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if everyone had a routine blood test every six months? I'm sure we'd catch a lot of things a lot earlier. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which reminds me, I should probably go see my internist at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, me too. I think it's been a long time since, probably two yeah. years since I've had anything done. <laughs> we always put so much effort yeah. into into others and into pets, but um, not us. Right. <laughs> yes, you forget that, oh, my goodness. All this advice I'm giving out, I'm not listening to myself at all. I know. Go and take some milk thistle. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> Craig, that's just been so interesting and insightful. And I feel like it's so clear, of, you know, when you sort of lay it all out like this, it's, it's actually quite quite clear on paper of um, how to approach a case such as this. I know that in real life, you know, <laughs> things aren't as um, sort of perfect yeah. <laughs> as we've discussed. But what I'd really love to know before we finish up is um, if someone has a, a new puppy or a new kitten or a new anything and they um, perhaps they're just sort of generally very um, invested in a preventative uh, healthcare approach or they've had a previous pet who succumbed to liver disease and they're sort of on the watch for it. Is there anything that you would suggest, this is probably a bit left of field, that we can do to just nurture the liver, given how important it is for health? Yes, sure. Now, there is an opportunity um, for us to perhaps concentrate on diet. Yeah. Um, certainly, there are certain breeds. Again, I, I'm not definitely, I know you guys have these the dingoes running around but uh, there are certainly certain breeds that are prone to liver problems or as you've mentioned if they had a previous dog um, obviously during the early puppy or kitten time frame you've got to be cognizant of what they need to grow and develop mm, of course. but then it turns out many many diets uh, probably have excess level, levels of copper yeah. And copper is one of our more targeted etiologies behind liver. Even if you're not one of the breeds, you're not a lab or you're not a Bedlington or a West Highland White, yeah. excess copper can happen in, in any breed or mixed breed animal. And unfortunately, uh, we're, we're concerned that part of what we're seeing as far as an increase in these kinds of cases is dietary. Yeah. Uh, because for whatever reason, AFCO just has us probably feeding way too much copper uh, to our to our canine friends, and so this is where certainly uh, from a reputable manufacturer, um, a complete and balanced diet, but one that has uh, is cognizant of having uh, less copper levels would be a very reasonable thing as far as early intervention uh, in our dogs if that's if that's one of our worries. And again, more just as we've been talking about, more and more pet food companies are also incorporating antioxidants into their formulas. Yeah. Uh, and again, I would, again, in the States, I'm, I'm not that familiar with Australia. See, all of these reasons that uh, I need to be invited over to Australia. <laughs> no. um, but <laughs> we have this huge proliferation of boutique diets. Um, and I'd be very cautious there 
I, again, being old and conservative, I lean towards well-established uh, pet food companies that um, they get a bad rep, but they're the ones actually often spending a fair bit of money, time, and effort uh, researching their products or or providing research funds for veterinary institutions, et cetera. So um, sticking there makes the dietary choice often uh, a bit easier in these youngsters as well, and you can be more assured that you're getting a, a complete and balanced diet. But that would be a, a very reasonable way uh, as a first approach to their ongoing health of these youngsters. Sure. And in terms of sort of things to avoid, uh, obviously, if we can avoid medications unless they're really needed, that's always a good thing in, in terms of sort of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and steroids and, mm -hmm. and different things like that. Um, but is there anything, you know, supplement-wise that you would worry about in a young animal as a prevention or are you really just reaching for them when you see the first signs of, of uh, liver insult or some sort of dysfunction? Right, uh, right you are. Yep, because, yeah, likewise, at least here in the States, there is this trend towards uh, starting to, to supplement all sorts of stuff uh, at, at many different ages, but even in starting youngsters uh, for all sorts of reasons that might not make much sense. And at least in the States, many of these supplements are not particularly well regulated. Um, yeah. So, for instance, this day and age, probiotics are all the rage. Yes. Uh, and there have now been several studies, uh, Dr. Weiss, um, has actually repeated this study now again, where uh, he took a bunch of probiotics off the shelf here at the States. It'd be off, for instance, Whole Foods shelf. Yeah. And uh, how many of them, and he looked at how many of them actually inside the bottle had what they claimed they had outside the bottle. And it's, it's really eye-opening because out of 2025, we maybe ended up with three that yeah. were... Uh, true to their label. I mean, some of them, they couldn't even spell the bacteria correctly. Oh, so that dear. already gives you, yeah, yeah cause a bit of a red so flag. I'd be very, again, very careful. If you are, and this goes right back to what we were talking about. If you are feel, feeding a, uh, a solid age appropriate diet from a reputable pet food company that's taken the effort to make their, sure their AFCO or whatever your regulatory agency is, is complete then just like young kids or young people, uh, the diet is the best way to get uh, all the antioxidants and all the right balances of all these other stuffs that you could need. Just by having a, a solid, healthy diet, you're covering that probably in the best way that you can. So, right, I'd be a little careful about, you know, grandma who walks in with a grocery bag full of supplements, throws it on your counter and says, what do you think, doc? And yeah. I'd be saying, well, let's, yeah, let's go for, you know, adult or young adult pro plan from whomever your your pet food companies are that you try. Yeah, of course. That's very sound advice. And a good way to, to finish looking at uh, how we can support uh, animals right from day one. And then, of course, reflecting back on all of the amazing different tips and, and practical advice that you've given us. Priya, uh, I so much appreciate the invitation and uh, very much enjoyed uh, talking over it. It's one of my favorite topics and I 
if everything lines up nicely, perhaps next time we can talk in person and preferably in Australia. Yeah. So that would that would be great. That would be great. Super. I'll definitely keep that in mind and we'll um, we'll have to touch base again because I'd love to pick your brains about uh, your research that you're doing with um, with cats and, and IBD and lymphoma. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that could be sure. another Happy whole topic. To. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Thanks again, Craig. Have a great afternoon and evening. Yes, you too. This was the Pure Animal Podcast and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. If you enjoyed hearing Dr. Webb's approach to liver disease, please feel free to share this episode and rate and review us on iTunes.